0: And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, a Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note the following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Over the top is a famous Canadian photograph from the First World War, which features Canadian soldiers climbing over a trench, guns at the ready as they head out into the field of battle against Germans. It's an impactful photo. It's also fake. The photograph was not taken on the battlefield, but during training and away from the front lines. The soldiers held rifles that had practice covers over them and one soldier was thumbing his nose in the finished product. The covers were removed and the thumb was altered. The photograph ran in newspapers with stories stating every man was killed soon after and praised the bravery of the photographer who took it. Now The photo was fake but Canadian war photographers during the first world war did put their lives on the line to capture beautiful and haunting images i'm craig baird this is canadian history x and today i'm sharing some of those stories at a second story window of his country house in la graf france inventor joseph nipsey placed a camera obscura loaded with a polished light sensitive bitumen coated pewter plate and aimed it towards the view outside he then uncovered the lens the result the earliest surviving photograph from a camera, called View from the Window at Le Gras. It dates back to 1826, and although the image is grainy and depicts a roof and some buildings, it marked a milestone in a new medium. Twelve years later, Louis de took the earliest known photograph containing people in 1838's View from the Boulevard du Temple, where you'll see a man getting his boots shined in the bottom left corner. It would take less than a decade for this new art form to make its way to the battlefront. War is an ever-present part of human history, and in 1847 an unknown photographer captured the first images of combat during the Mexican-American War in 1847. These early photographs did not capture moving subjects, they focused on portraits of soldiers, the land before and after a battle, fortifications, and anything else that wasn't moving. During the Crimean War, the first official attempts at war photography were made by the British government. They commissioned photographer Gilbert Elliot in March 1854 to capture photographs of Russian fortifications along the coast of the Baltic Sea. Roger Fenton was also commissioned by the British government to provide photographic coverage of the war. The war was unpopular with the British public and it was hoped that Fenton's photographs could swing public opinion. But it wasn't until the American Civil War from 1861 to 1865 that war photography reached a new level of sophistication. Photographers like Haley Sims and Alexander Gardner rearranged bodies of dead soldiers during the war to create better compositions and capture the atrocities in battle. These photos showed the horrific reality of the Civil War to the public, even if they were a bit fabricated. Throughout the remainder of the 19th century, war photography grew in scope as both governments and news organizations sent photographers to the front lines. Then, in 1914, the First World War began, and war photography was about to enter a new age. At the start of the war in July 1914, the Canadian government made no efforts to capture the war through official photographs. It was generally accepted by both leaders and troops that the war would be over by Christmas. That was not the case as both the Allies and the Germans became entrenched in a long and bloody stalemate. By this point in history, cameras were smaller and cheaper, so the art of war photography fell into the hands of the soldiers themselves. But this worried command as they believed photographs taken on the front lines could jeopardize battle plans, and troops were banned from taking photographs with their own cameras. But that didn't stop Jack Turner. Born in Canada in 1889, he was a soldier with the second Canadian siege battery. While at the front lines, Turner smuggled in a German-built camera that was 2 inches by 3 inches. To get film, he sent coded letters to his parents when he wrote that he wanted cigarettes that was code for a roll of film. He developed many of the 99 photographs he took of the war in the corner of a bombed-out building he happened to live in while stationed near the front lines in 1917. But some of his photographs remained undeveloped until the 1970s. And as the war raged on, the number of casualties increased, and Turner's photos provided a unique glimpse into the war without censoring or fabrication. But meanwhile, back at the home front, there was a need to build more support for the war. So enter into the picture and pardon the pun, Max Aitken. Aitken was born in 1879 in Maple, Ontario. He was one of 10 children to William and Jane Aitken who moved the family to New Brunswick when Max was a year old. At the age of 13, he started up his own newspaper, The Leader, beginning a long relationship with print media. Throughout the early 1900s, he made a name for himself. He invested in the Montreal Herald, founded the Montreal Engineering Company, and oversaw the construction of the Horseshoe Falls hydro station. And by the time he moved to Britain in 1910, he was a multi-millionaire thanks to his business skills. But it's important to note that his departure from Canada was hastened by accusations of underwriting stocks to earn extra profits, and allegations of price gouging and poor management in his cement plants. The same year he arrived in Britain, he was elected to the British Parliament, where he became close friends with Bonar Law, future Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, and a fellow Canadian. In 1911, Aiken was knighted by King George V, and for the next few years, he invested heavily in newspapers in the United Kingdom. After the First World War began, Aiken campaigned for a cabinet post in the British government, but was unsuccessful. Looking for something more substantial to do during the war, he turned to Canada and his friends, Prime Minister Sir Robert Borden and Sir Sam Hughes, the Canadian Minister of Militia. They appointed him as the official eyewitness, a new title that didn't really have much power behind it. He was also made an honorary lieutenant colonel. Taking his new title, Aiken wrote articles from the Western Front about Canadian troops, which were published in many newspapers he owned in the United Kingdom and Canada. In mid-1915, he became the Canadian records officer. Seeing the need for support on the home front, he argued that photographs could help connect people at home with the conflict, while boosting the profile of Canadian soldiers. Provided with a $25,000 government grant, he established the Canadian War Records Office, and one of the first things he did was hire an official war photographer, and that photographer was Captain Harry Edward Noble. Born in 1871 in England, Noble enlisted with the Canadian Expeditionary Force on August 27, 1914, only three weeks after the war began. While serving with the 2nd Canadian Brigade, he quickly moved up the ranks going from private to captain in the span of a year. He was made Canada's official war photographer on May 11, 1916. Many of the images Noble took were not of the battlefield. Instead, he captured the farewell dinner of British General Louis Lipset on June 28, 1916, and of a kitten born in the trenches taking a drink from a coffee cup. Unfortunately, his time at the front lines took its toll and he developed PTSD. His hands developed tremors, making it difficult to take photographs. The last photograph he took was of three swans in a lake on the battlefield. After time in hospital, he returned to Canada and, in August 1916, he was replaced by Ivor Castle, who had 20 years of experience photographing international conflicts. Castle was highly skilled, but was not against staging photographs to tell a story which Aiken allowed. Four of the first photographs Castle took are arguably the most famous, but also some of the most doctored. The first photograph in the four photograph series was called Fixing Bayonets Previous to a Charge by Canadians on the Somme. The troops in the image were not charging into battle, as I said, they were training. After the photograph was taken, Castle removed the rifle covers using techniques he had learned over the years. The second image of the series is the one I mentioned at the beginning of this episode and featured troops going over the top of the trench and into battle. However, as you know by now, it too was faked. Shells bursting in the sky were added in the background later and the man thumbing his nose had his hand removed from the photo. You could even say he fixed it in post. The third photograph... The last, over the top, also had practice covers from the rifles removed from the photo, but unfortunately, one copy of the photograph was printed in Illustrated War News with one rifle featuring its cover. The error was cropped out in later reproductions. The last photograph in the series was called, Canadian's Charging on the Somme, manned first appeared in British newspapers in August 1916, but it wasn't described as showing the 20th Canadian Infantry Battle at the Battle of Courcelette. By December 1916, 150 photographs by Castle, including those four I mentioned and images of a variety of things from the war, including ruined villages and prisoners of war, were shown at Grafton Galleries in London. The show was opened by Sir George Purley, canned as Minister of Overseas Military Force, his wife Lady Purley, Princess Patricia, and Max Aiken, now Lord Beaverbrook. The four photographs that I highlighted had stories added to them that were far from true as they were taken away from the battlefield. And Castle leaned into the fabrication himself by saying, Taking photographs of the men going over the parapet is quite exciting. Nothing, of course, can be arranged. Regardless, the exhibit was a massive success as over 80,000 visitors saw the photographs over the course of six weeks, the Daily Mirror stated. The exhibition constitutes a record in war photography. Nothing like it has been seen before. When newspapers needed an image from the front lines they often used Castle's photographs even if they had nothing to do with the story. On April 11, 1917, the Daily Mirror printed Over the Top in a report on Vimy Ridge, five days before Castle's photos of the battle actually reached the newspapers. The caption stated the photograph was the Canadians at the Somme. Some of Castle's actual Vimy Ridge photographs were also altered with dead bodies and shell bursts added after the fact. Soon after the Battle of Vimy Ridge in April 1917, Castle's Photo Exhibit travelled to Canada for a series of shows, and the exhibit was joined by Major Maurice Bohm. Major Bohm sailed to England in October 1916 and joined the War Records office in February 1917. He went back to Canada in April 1917 and travelled with the exhibit sharing fantastic tales related to the photographs even though he had seen little, if any, combat. Around this same time, William Ryder Ryder was hired as Castle's assistant. He eventually replaced Castle as official photographer sometime in the summer of 1917. There were claims that Castle had developed PTSD, but I was unable to verify this. Castle may have been gone from the front lines, but his old photos were still being used in newspapers' battle reports. In an article on the Battle of Passchendaele, which occurred from July to November 1917, the Glasgow Daily Record used the photographs, fixing bayonets previous to a charge and Canadians charging on the Somme from a year earlier. On November 18, 1917, Lemire used the -the over-the-top photo with the caption stating the image was from the beginning of the attack at Passchendaele. And with each publication it seemed that the stories and the photographs became more fantastic, Often captions stated that every man in the photo had been killed just after the photo was taken, while Castle was half buried in a shell blast. On August 30th, 1918, another wild fabrication as the picture was included in Amateur Photographs Weekly, and the article stated, It will be noted that all of the men in it are smiling except one. This is said to be typical of the men as they go over. The unsmiling one had a grouch, because having managed to get some booze the night before, He had received not only punishment, but also a big head. Curiously enough, he was one of the three to come back alive. Castle's photographs went on tour of the United States in the hopes it would bolster American support for the war. The photo exhibitions also raised money for the Canadian War Memorials Fund. The New York Mail wrote of Over the Top and its photographer, had spattered his helmet and left him unharmed, but when he lifted his eyes, not a man in the group he had just snapped was standing. And while Castle's successor William Ryder Ryder remained as the official war photographer for the rest of the war, it was not easy on him. He lost 35 pounds over his time as the official war photographer. And by the end of the war, Canada's war photographers had captured 6,500 photographs. And while some may have been fabricated, many were not, They give us a glimpse of the war from the eyes of the soldier, from the trenches to the shelled landscape of no man's land. And after the war was over, William Ryder Ryder was made a member of the Order of the British Empire, while Ivor Castle was made an officer of the Order of the British Empire. The art of war photography continued on from the First World War and gave those away from the conflict incredible insights on the impact of battle. Now, joining me today is Carla Jean Stokes, an expert in Canadian war photography who earned her Master's of History from Wilfrid Laurier University and a Master's of Photographic Preservation and Collections Management from Toronto Metropolitan University. I'm going to be talking to her about the war photographers, the fabrication of photos, the history of war photography, and much more. So let's dive right in and learn a bit more about Canada's war photographers. Tell me a bit about how you got interested in photography preservation and, you know, First World War photographers, because it's a very, it's a very niche thing for sure.
1: Definitely. Um, Actually, the first photography that I was really interested in was and is fashion photography, which is very different from war photography. Um, I don't know. It was like a, a whole bunch of things going on probably which is the case for anybody who gets into any any discipline. Um, I did a master's in history in twenty between twenty ten and twenty eleven. I was lucky enough to do a battlefield tour. I was really interested in war art, um, and and did a presentation actually on on the artist George Gross. So I was really interested in visual culture and then Canadian military history. Um but even then, like I used to write like a fashion blog and I would go Um, like every, every time there was a fashion week, I'd be on like style.com to look at pictures of, of that kind of thing. And, uh, I was even during my master's writing essays on the history of fashion during wartime. Um, so yeah, it is really weird. And then I just had a friend suggest like, maybe, maybe you could write a series of blogs on war photography. Um, I am a photographer and have been for a very long time um and so that person just made the suggestion it was like yeah i could look into that that sounds okay um and then i was really interested in in what i was seeing and learning about um i don't know how to describe that like when i look at war photographs particularly of the first world war i don't know it has some ability to just like create resonance for me usually um and so I, I was really hooked by that and learning more and more about photographic processes because I started with digital photography. Um, and then so in order to understand how war photographs were made, I had to learn about photographic processes of those those different eras. Um, and then I stumbled on a program that is at Toronto Metropolitan University. Of course, it was called Ryerson University back then. Um was one of the only programs in the world on photographic preservation and collections management. So collections management is just museum collections and how do you care for them? Um, and so during my time there, everything I did was related to war photography. And I learned, how do you make a war photograph like Roger Fenton did in the Crimea in the 1850s? And I, I like tried making those. Um, And I was really lucky because I worked with amazing curators and collections managers at places like Library and Archives Canada and the Art Gallery of Ontario. And when those people learned what I was interested in, they would order that material up for me and send it to me and say, hey, look at this. And I was really lucky to be supported by people um, who could help me, I don't know, just carve out my niche a little bit more. Um, So, yeah, I guess that's that's how I ended up here many, many years later.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And uh, you mentioned uh, Roger Fenton, and he's somebody that I I did cover in the episode. Uh, But when we think of war photography, during that time, it's, you know, the Civil War, it's, you know, posing shots of soldiers. There's obviously not a lot of moving pictures. And then we start to get that change in the First World War, especially with smaller cameras. And one name I came across was Jack Turner. And, you know, he did smuggle a a camera in and capture very... uh, I guess, uh, at the moment, pictures not really set up or anything like that. But uh, so was it true that the Canadian government or the British government, they didn't want soldiers to have cameras because they were worried about battle plans and and other things?
1: For sure. So for the Canadians in particular, there was an order sent out called Routine Order 189. It was sent out in March of 1915, asking soldiers to please... Stop taking pictures, send your cameras home. Um, So when the war started, it was actually okay for Canadian soldiers to have their own cameras, but they were asked not to, don't let taking photographs get in the way of everything else you're responsible for. Don't send your photographs home, and please don't send them to the press. Um, So you could take photographs if you kept it to yourself, and none of those rules were followed. So that's why this Routine Order 189 was issued in March of 1915. Um, It was largely ignored, which is kind of great for historians because we would have no pictorial record of the war if it wasn't for soldiers. Um, But yes, some have described the First World War as the war of the camera. And it was the first war in history in which a lot of soldiers knew how to use a camera. And in fact, where a lot of soldiers had been photographed. But at the same time, we don't want to overstate like the novelty of photography, even in 1914, because some sort of like poor guys from the prairies, maybe, maybe they'd never been photographed in their whole life, or maybe this was their first time ever being photographed. And that's still so far removed from our experience with photography today.
0: Absolutely. And then we get to somebody like Max Aitken, who is a is a real interesting individual just based on what I was researching and writing, but he helps create the Canadian War Records Office and then hires that first photographer, Henry Noble. So you can tell me a bit about uh, Henry Noble. I know he was only a short time as our official photographer, but he did take quite a few photos.
1: For sure. So um, he's Harry Edward Noble. He was born in 1871. Um in England, all of Canada's official war photographers were born in England, but Noble was the only one that actually had lived in Canada. So he moved to Port Arthur, Ontario around 1899. And he was one of the, uh, one of the old originals. So he enlisted in 1914 and, uh, and, and he was an infantry soldier. Um, He rose through the ranks and by 19. Oh, I'm losing myself here. Like 1915, he's experiencing obviously the horror of the First World mm-hmm. War, um, and so early 1916, obviously Max Aitken gets permission to hire photographers in March of 1916. If we look through the records, we see sort of these memos, kind of trying to decide who are we going to hire. Um, there's real. I've never found any record to tell me why Noble was chosen. Ever, there's nothing that I've ever found to say. We've chosen Harry Noble, and this is why. Um, however, he ends up on uh, on the Western Front with a camera by May of 1916. So we know that he'd been suffering from neurasthenia, as it was called at that time, and uh, and so that might be that might be why he ended up mm-hmm. getting this position as photographer. Um, he was, by all accounts, well respected as a soldier. Um, and therefore, uh, it wasn't sort of the situation of like, we don't actually think Noble is suffering. Like he probably was believed or or there was some degree of sympathy surrounding him. Um, and that's probably why he ended up getting this position as Canada's first official photographer. Um, so he began photographing in, in May of 1916, uh, showing us sort of what was life like on the Western Front for Canadian soldiers. And he photographed throughout the spring and summer until August of 1916. And then he actually did have to be sent home, probably due to um, what we would now call stress injuries or post-traumatic stress disorder.
0: Yeah, it did seem very random that he was just kind of plucked and near the official war photographer. But I do like his photos because when I was looking at them, there's a lot of ones that aren't really related to battles or anything. Like I think his last photo was the swans on the lake and he has a photo of a kitten drinking out of a cup and they're kind of very peaceful photos, which I feel like really lends to maybe where his state of mind was, That he wanted to focus on that stuff rather than the horrors that he was, he was dealing with. So obviously that brings in Ivor Castle, who I think is kind of the the main guy for the first world war and the one who took a lot of uh, photos that are very, doctored now that we know uh so uh, tell me a bit about him and and kind of how he did get into that role Mm -hmm.
1: yeah Ivor Castle is so different from Harry Noble in that he was a career press photographer By by the time he was 20 years old he had photographs on the cover of London's newspapers um he traveled the whole world as a press photographer and we know about this because he would send postcards back to his wife and his kids. And his uh, his grandson still has them, which is amazing. So we know everywhere where he visited. Um, and he was sort of, of that early 20th century press photographer. And there's so many of them. And a lot of them did end up working during the First World War. And they're forever chasing like that scoop. They want to get that amazing photograph from that newsworthy event. And they'll, they'll travel the world and they'll get in there. Um, to do it, and a lot of those photographers left behind memoirs. Unfortunately, Castle wasn't one of them. Um, but they all they all traveled uh, to the Balkans during the first first and second Balkan Wars, um, and Castle was among them. And they he worked for a newspaper called the Daily Mirror, and he would send his dispatches back to London, and we can still read them today. So we can read what he wrote about his wartime experiences. So when Noble when Noble needed to leave the Western Front. Uh, Sir Max Aitken, who by now or was close to being Lord Beaverbrook, I never know when he got that. Uh, uh, I, 1917, I, just, I think. Yeah, so not quite, <laughs> not quite Beaverbrook yet. Um, he's friends with important people like Lord Rothamir, who owns the Daily Mirror, and Rothamir says, "Hmm, maybe you should hire Ivor Castle." Ah, uh, so there's a little bit of like you know finagling that ha- happens there, and the Daily Mirror gets really specific perks like the rights to certain photographs or the rights to reproduce those photographs as postcards. So they get Castle in there as Canada's official photographer beginning in the fall, late summer and fall of 1916. Um, And he photographed some really iconic battles for the Canadians, such as the Battle of Courselet and the Battle of Vimy Ridge. And as you mentioned, Craig, there's a some of those really, really iconic photographs, but now we know some of them were staged and some of them were manipulated. And again, when we think about Castle's history as that that press photographer who's really forever searching for that amazing photograph that's going to make him famous and it's going to live past the press cycle. That's what he really wanted. And and that's what he worked towards. And Beaverbrook was completely OK with that. And and together they pref- they they created the sort of dynamic duo. Um, of of creating this spectacle that would raise the profile of the Canadians on an international stage.
0: And with with Castle, especially with his over-the-top photo, it's reproduced, it's used in newspapers where... It's nothing to do with the battle that they're talking about. and these stories start to pop up around that Castle even kind of plays into. Why was it, I guess, okay at the time to really just create these stories around these pictures? Was it to drum up support for the war effort or just to, you know, to play into the narrative that a lot of people saw with the with the pictures, especially over the top?
1: Mm-hmm. there's yeah, there's a lot of interesting things going on sort of within that time period of nineteen sixteen to nineteen eighteen where at first it's probably just a matter of it would be really hard for Castle to get a photo like over the top without putting himself at like extreme risk. Um, So it's a photograph taken during training instead. And, and we have, we see now um, that everybody's camera's breach cover has been manipulated to show real, real guns. Um, And so that's really dangerous for him. And and kind of that in itself would be okay, just to say this is kind of what battle looks like. This is training. That's how we would treat that photograph today. At the time, it was considered okay to let that pass um, as a genuine photograph of battle. Kessel does play into that. Even when he attends uh, the exhibition of his photographs, he's saying, like, this is this is taken during the Battle of Corselet, when of course it wasn't. Mm-hmm. And then the photograph traveled throughout North America and and the stories surrounding it just got weirder and weirder (laughs) and when it traveled through the united states it was a matter of drumming up support for the war in terms of men and in terms of material um so this the story was always changing there was always things added onto it like this is a dangerous battle scene to like everybody died and and there aren't really great records to tell us who made those stories up and, and how they happened. What we have is sort of like the user facing um, side of things where like we can read the newspapers now and and we can track those changes, but we don't know where, where the stories came from, which is sort of an unfortunate um, situation where you're doing this kind of history. So, yeah, I mean, we know now that that newspapers and journalists have these, these standards that have been set and, and maybe because of crazy stories like that. (laughs) We also know that different countries had different standards as well. Um, So Beaverbrook didn't really have a problem with creating manipulated photographs. They didn't need to be identified as manipulated. Whereas um, the Australians, those photographers like um, Frank Hurley was also very interested in creating manipulated scenes of war, but um the people that he reported to at the Australian War Records section required that he he label any manipulated photograph and he was limited to only making a certain number for exhibition so really different different perspectives on that based on basically who you're reporting to the british were really wary of of putting forth manipulated or staged photographs because they felt there was a ton at stake and so they created what they called the a propaganda of the facts So you can kind of bend the truth a teeny tiny bit in this. But if you're caught like outright lying, obviously they saw that as a huge problem.
0: Yeah. And uh, like I said, like you said, uh, the the facts kept getting more and more embellished. I think at one point I read that Castle was buried, half buried in a shell blast after taking the photo. (laughs) Like it really gets up there. I guess for some people... When we think of like editing photos, we obviously think of Photoshop and such. And I understand how it would be easy to add, uh, you know, puffs of smoke and such to a photo. But how would you get rid of like the practice covers on those rifles to make it look like they're just regular rifles?
1: Ooh, I actually, um, I also have never found a record that would like um, give us a step-by-step process of how somebody like Castle would do this, or if he had hired a retoucher. We actually don't know that. Um, However, you you technically could take a glass plate negative and reproduce that onto a flexible piece of film. Um, and, and you could take other flexible film negatives of real guns and, and kind of cut and paste them together. And it would be really difficult. But um, photographic retouching is something that that people had been doing basically since the invention of the glass plate negative. Uh, and that that process was invented in 1851. So, as soon as, as that came out and and you had a negative that you could kind of see through, uh, it became more and more easy to manipulate your negatives. And then we have the invention of, of roll film in the end of the 1880s, and that makes it a little bit easier. Um, so, photographic retouching has taken place almost throughout the history of photography. Basically, History or sorry, photography was announced to the world in 1839, and people thought it was really cool, but still never perfect. And so there was always this quest to like, how can we make this better and look more real? Um, you know, I think I'm I'm misquoting myself here. It was not misquoting myself, but like even I'm thinking back to like paper negatives, and that's a process that was announced in 1839. Um. Like photographers like Gustave Le Grey would would photograph the ocean and he would be dissatisfied with how the sky looked in relation to the water and the foreground. And so he would just put a new sky in. Uh and and those negatives are still preserved at the at the Louvre, actually. So I mean it's it's such an old thing. And I, I'm sure that every single photographer that did it had their own process for it as well. So Again, like it's it's so annoying because the ability to find the records to tell us how everybody was doing this or like, did Castle manipulate his own photographs? No idea. We have no record for that. Um, How did they even decide that they were going to do this? No record for that. Uh, (laughs) So it's it's really frustrating and it becomes a question of just cross-referencing every single source that you can find to come to some kind of conclusion on on how are we going to figure this out?
0: And then Castle leaves, and he's replaced by William Ryder Ryder. So, tell me a bit about uh, about William, and he obviously served till the end of the war.
1: Yes, Um, so around early nineteen seventeen, around the Battle of Vimy Ridge, Beaverbrook is deciding this this job of being the photographer for the Canadian Corps. It's too much for one guy. I think we need to hire an assistant for Castle, and so he he decides he's asked to please find a Canadian. And he's like, nah, we're just gonna we're gonna get Rider Rider instead. He also worked at the Daily Mirror alongside Castle, probably another Rothermere uh, influence here. And so Rider Rider is chosen. But sometime in the summer of 1917, Castle he stopped spending quite so much time on the Western Front. Uh, Ryder Ryder said that basically by July, Castle was gone. But if we actually consult the sources, we know that that's not true. Castle was kind of in and out of the Western Front until probably about November of 1917. And then he mostly spent his time in London. And he was organizing those exhibitions and probably doing a little bit more comfortable jobs for the Canadian War Records office and Ryder Ryder was left to photograph. Um and so that his first major battle was the Battle of Hill 70 in August of 1917. And he brought us all the way to the 100 days and November 11th, 1918. So his body of work ended up being the biggest of all of Canada's three photographers. And I think much like Noble, Ryder Ryder was a soldier at heart. And he had he had hoped to enlist uh, as, as a soldier, but uh, he was found medically unfit for, for active service. So he actually was a phys ed trainer. And after the war, he said he really liked to whip up these kind of soft men and turn them into the soldiers. Um, so he really he, to me, he comes off as such a guy's guy and he likes to drop names and say, Oh, I had dinner with Arthur Curry. And like he kept <laughs> all this stuff after the war, like um uh, dinner programs and things that he was invited to, and he'd write little notes in them. And and you could tell he was really proud to be a part of that. And he and when he was asked, like, why, why were you? why did you decide to become the official photographer? He's like, cause I was asked to, the military asked me to do this. And, and you don't say no to orders like that. Um, so he, he really tries to come off as very brave. And I think of all the photographers, he's really talented at getting in close to the Canadian soldiers and really showing us like he'll get right in a trench and get low and make us feel like we're there. And that's his talent as a photographer.
0: And then for yourself, when you look at these photos, I mean, I guess, what is it like being able to see these photos from the war over a hundred years ago now and see these people, many of whom did make it back home? Uh, and you're always, you know, finding new photos and and new ways to look at things. So what is that like for you?
1: It's incredible. It's like, <laughs> it's <laughs> one of the happiest things I get to do in my life is uh, like go to an archive. And I'm so lucky that that different museums and archives will invite me in to look at their collections, which obviously I haven't done in a long time because of COVID. And then I had a baby, but before that, and I know it will continue <laughs> after, um, just to go in there and look at those original objects. And you're looking at a photograph that belonged to someone um, either. I mean, I have seen some negatives at library and archives Canada and I was just terrified to even like open the box. Cause to me, like that's the one of the most precious things in the world are these original glass plate negatives that, Sailed across the ocean and and ended up in Gatineau of all places. <laughs> um, but from those negatives, the Canadian War Records Office reproduced thousands of prints um, so people could order prints, and in fact, Rider Rider would take orders on the western front. and we we still have this order forms, which is really cool. So just all these different people were buying photographs or looking at them through magazines or lantern slides or postcards. And it's so interesting to me to think about, what were people looking at over a hundred years ago? because today we see a digitized image on the screen. But no one was ever meant to look at a digitized negative. They were meant to look at photographs either in like a private setting, like you bought this photo and you kept it or you put it in an album and you display it in your home and you look at it together. So there's these ways of seeing and and it creates meaning that's individualized for that person who originally got that photograph. But that meaning has shifted through the last hundred years and as, as photographs go through different collections, uh, maybe through a family or from a collection that's private to a collection that's public. So there's so many different layers to these objects, but to look at something that, that meant something to somebody over a hundred years ago, I think is so incredible. And that was sort of the power of those photographic exhibitions that Beaverbrook and Castle organized was a huge part of that was telling people, you should come to this exhibition because you're probably going to see a photograph of somebody you know. And that's really the power of those photographs in the sense that people weren't going there to see like a place they had never heard of. They were going to see a place that they had heard of because their son or their brother had fought there and they wanted to know what that looked like. They wanted to know how it would feel. And so it's that social history of objects that I think is so captivating. And at the same time, I'm so removed from that because I I didn't even have any family members who fought in the war. Um, and although I've been to the Western Front, I don't really have like those access points in the same way. But for whatever reason, the meaning of photographs, it comes from us. And so I've I've like projected my own meaning on them. And I guess after spending years and years studying these photographers, like maybe that's maybe that's the the shoes i want to step into and think about it from their perspective but to to look at those photographs or hold them in your hand or i have like an ebay problem and i buy them <laughs> i buy them for myself and i have them on my office wall which is silly like they're in full sunlight i know how to take care of photographs but like the cobbler's children have the worst shoes so <laughs>
0: uh Speaking of, you touched on it, how important were these photos for the home front and for whether it was support for the war, whether it was propaganda, whether it was, you know, buying victory bonds, how important were these photos that were sent back to Canada for that that type of thing?
1: I think the best we can do, unfortunately, is just speculate in, in the sense that, I mean, somebody probably could do some kind of study on this this exhibition came to toronto in 1917 and then after that there was a huge um climb in in enlistments and and the sale of war bonds like perhaps somebody could do that i think the best we can do is kind of speculate in the sense that it must have meant a lot for family members to be able to have some kind of visual connection to to soldiers as a result of seeing those photographs but we do know that private soldier photographs were Incredibly important for people. So many soldiers went and had their photograph taken, uh, and so many of them, you read in the letters, they're like, "Oh, I got my picture taken, and I think I look like such an idiot." But here you go. <laughs> and so their discomfort with photography is kind of interesting too. But I mean, I've certainly heard stories and read stories about people that that hung on to soldier portraits for their whole lives. Like one woman who uh, her little brother died in the war; he enlisted. Uh, underage and and die quite quite soon after his service began and she kept a framed photograph of him on her dresser for the rest of her life um and I don't think that that's a very rare circumstance so I think just just the existence of any kind of war photographs I think was incredibly meaningful for people that were at home
0: and for us today these photographs are obviously very important so why is it so important for us to preserve these to you know find them in attics wherever they might be to tell this story of something that happened over 100 years ago but was very important to the history of canada and to have this photographic record
1: Mm -hmm. so um there's an amazing historian dr susan moeller and she talks about this in her book um in which she says war photographs like photographs of the first world war it's The only way most of us will ever experience war. Um, Most of us in Canada are so lucky to have never experienced war. Um, And obviously, the First World War is beyond our living memory. And it's also kind of the only way where we we think we know what war looked like. We think about if we if we said the word Passchendaele in our heads, we would probably visualize what William Rider Rider photographed of Passchendaele and so he's the reason why we think we know what that battle looked like um so to me that's that's incredibly important if if our military history is important to us which i think it is um for a multitude of reasons then having images of war it it i mean it just is a huge part of that um So obviously, preservation is incredibly important. The preservation of information with photographs is incredibly important. Obviously, um, we see online every single day. You could go to any not so reputable website and (laughs) find a picture of war and they'll tell you, this is a picture of this. But if you went to the archive that owns that negative, they might tell you something vastly different. So the preservation of information relating to photographs, um, it's so important in combating misinformation in the internet age.
0: And one thing that I've seen with, uh, with your social media is that you obviously always credit where the photo comes from. And I've seen you mention how important it is to credit the photographers who even though they're long gone, they will never see this on Twitter or whatever it might be. Uh, Why is it, you know, it's so important to credit these people because they were out there in many cases, even with the doctoring, putting their lives on the line, dealing with battle. And so why is it so important to make sure we credit them, whether it's on social media or like you mentioned on a website so that we know the true story of these photos?
1: For sure. So um, I think crediting the photographer helps us understand a little bit more about how that photograph came to be made. And, when we take the time to look at enough photographs from individual photographers, it's going to help us understand how did they approach the task of photographing war? Did they have an individual style? Um, for example, British photographers Ernest Brooks and John Warwick Brook, they were both in Arras either at the same time or within a day of each other. And you can look at each each of their sets of photographs. They were both in the destroyed cathedral and Ernest Brooks photographed from the ground, but John Warwick Brook actually climbed up and photographed from a higher vantage point. And that's really an interesting approach, I think. And so when we look at those photographs, we look at those individual styles. And it tells us something about that person as a photographer. And then if you look at more work from John Warwick Brook, you'll start to notice that he always like he must have been a monkey as a child, like always climbing, (laughs) always getting a different vantage point. And that that to me is interesting. It tells me something about that photographer. Ivor Castle is a photographer. He was known amongst the Canadians as having staged and manipulated more photographs than anyone else and so what does that say about him when we reach back into his biography? Does that tell us anything about somebody who would, who would want to stage their photographs? Like maybe yes, maybe no. When we think about uh, British photographer David McClellan. He photographed the weirdest things. And, and he was his style seems very surreal, more so than any other photographer of a Commonwealth nation. So when we take the time to look at photographs, it's going to tell us something about their style. And so that's why I think the credit is important. There's a photograph that um, often gets cropped down to a single person within a large scene. And it's a, a man with blue eyes and he's sitting in a trench and people like to say, this is a photograph of shell shock. And there's these crazy stories, um, mostly on websites like Reddit, um, saying that this person has experienced shell shock, look at his face, when in reality, reality, they don't understand how blue resonates on on film. It's just looks white um so like they're like hey look at his crazy eyes but one story was saying that this person the photographer was really sympathetic and blah 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 and and so when you actually do your research you will learn that the photographer is Ivor Castle and if you knew anything about Ivor Castle you would know you know what he probably isn't there to um expose the the effects of shell shock that's There's no evidence of that. So when we take the time to credit that photographer and understand who they are, then we can start to um, discount these crazy myths that grow on the internet.
0: And then the last question, uh, somebody listens to this podcast, goes up to their attic, finds a box full of First World War photographs. What do they do?
1: Oh boy, they email me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) There's things you want to look for. Uh, So if it's a Canadian official photograph, probably somewhere on the front in a corner, there'll be the letter o and then a dot and then and then three or four numbers so like o dot one two three four so that's going to tell you it's canadian official if you look on the back you might see some stamps there might be a, a typewritten caption there might be a date so those are sort of things that we look for on a canadian official photograph if it's british it will have um no marking on the front, but on the back, there might be a, an alphanumeric code like C-1234D. Um, all British photographers were given their own letter. So C is Ernest Brooks and D is John Warwick Brook. Um, a is Royal Engineers. And then the number represents the, the order in which they were received by the British Propaganda Bureau. Or in the case of Canadians, the number would represent the order in which they're received by the Canadian War Records Office. If you find one of those photographs that's O dot something something, you can actually look it up on Library and Archives Canada. And that O number has been preserved, but (laughs) it's O dash in their system. If you find a British one that has C or D, you can actually look it up in the National Library of Scotland because they've preserved those C and D numbers. If it has a Q number, that means that it is British, but it was created in the 1920s after the Imperial War Museum was founded and all those photographers were invited back to help organize their photographs and they were all renumbered with the number with the letter Q and that's what the Imperial War Museum uses today so National Library of Scotland has preserved original negative numbers Imperial War Museum has has newer negative numbers Library and Archives Canada has preserved most of the original captions and those O numbers but they replaced the O dot with an O dash so that's the quick and dirty on how you might be able to identify Canadian or British official f- photographs. Um, you could You could approach a local museum and see if they want to take them if you want to get them out of your attic. You could sell them on eBay and they're worth a little bit of money. Um, <laughs> so there's a lot of different a lot of different avenues that one could take if they were lucky enough to find a box of war photographs somewhere on the premises.
0: I hope you enjoyed that episode and our look at the Canadian war photographers of the First World War. That closes out 2023. I want to thank everybody who've been enjoying the podcast over the past year. The fact you support the show and listen to it means a lot to me. We're going to be kicking off the new year with a new episode talking about the fur trader and explorer, Henry Kelsey. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio Production Design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at Canada, or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.